what's up, y'all? This is this is Kevin Koval, uh, host of the Corner Store. This is the Bodega Edition because we're uh, in a Airbnb in Williamsburg, uh, Brooklyn, yeah. talking to uh, the legendary uh, painter, artist, educator, muralist, fine artist, uh, content provider, content provider. <laughs> so, you know, one of the few folks who have stayed uh, making the transition from NYC train era graffiti to the studio and just a, a brilliant and you know at this point decades long practice in the art form uh, we have days aka chill two in the in, in the corner store thanks for being here man. no really problem it's a pleasure you. to be here yeah no thank you and and we got you some snacks uh great a young I, I'm not, i don't want people to listen to me chomping away no we but like that's okay. we like sound effects in the corner store okay. so yeah it <laughs> yeah. might be annoying no 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 not at all yeah and all also right. got you some iced tea and water but yeah man thank you for being here yeah um i mean i've you know see i mean you are is it weird to be called a legend yeah it's weird and it's a word an adjective that i never really use in reference to myself um it'd be weird if you did maybe yeah it's um i mean i know other people do but to me a, a legend especially in subway culture is somebody who you don't necessarily know them personally but you know their work and you really anticipate every piece, every new piece that they put out there. Um, it's, yeah, to me, that's like the definition of, of a legend. It's not somebody really that's so much in the public eye, but out of it. But his work is in the forefront. Well, you, I mean, in the time where the train, you know, where you were hitting trains, I imagine you weren't in the public eye in the same way. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean... You know, I, I was I started painting subways in New York City in 1976. You know, 77 was the year of the blackout here, which was a, a huge, big deal. I think the Yankees won the World Series that year. Yeah, Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson. Yeah. Um, there was a lot going on. But um, to answer your question, it really wasn't a cool, cool or hip thing to be a writer. It was really um, an undercover thing. And you kind of found that that encompassed your whole life. And it took up my whole life without exaggeration. And most of the people that I socialized with were also writers. So the, the culture itself from that period was uh, really insulated and underground, very much so, in every sense of the word. Yeah. You uh, started writing in high school or prior? Yes, okay. in high school. Yeah. Um, and, and how did you get involved? Well, uh, the, I went to the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan. So the the school was um, made up of kids that were artistically talented from all five boroughs. And a lot of, well, maybe not a lot, but there was a percentage of writers that actually went to that school, you know. Um, so I started meeting them, and it was something that I was always interested in or had a lot of questions about, and I started meeting them, and looking at their sketchbooks, what they're drawing, and I was just really drawn to the whole culture. What, what were you doing prior to uh, getting involved in graffiti? I mean, well, in, ter I was in terms just, of art. Uh, I was drawing comics. Yeah. I was really influenced by comics, Marvel comics, underground comics. Um, Do you have favorite joints? Mad Magazine. Oh, yeah. Things like that. Yeah. And even things that were older than that, like, say, Dick Tracy, you know, that appeared in the Sunday News. Uh, those things are all kind of influential to me and part of uh, my formation as an artist. So, you know, this is, I, I, I want to, you have a long career to talk about, but 
in that moment when you first you, you were obviously seeing stuff on the trains prior to meeting some of these writers yes what did you what did you think of graffiti prior to coming in to knowing folks inside the culture well to understand that completely you have to understand the kind of socioeconomic situation that New York was in in the mid 70s and early 70s which was you know it kind of felt like the rest of the country turned their back on New York City and um, it was a really economically deprived uh, city. You it was know, abandoned. Part, it was, I mean, or at least, or at least the, 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 the country were, turned its back. Yeah, there were parts of the Bronx that looked like after Hiroshima. You know, it was amazing. And, at, you know, also gang culture was very much thriving at that period. And, and part of that whole culture was marking out your territory with graffiti you know so i in the, i guess my first exposure to writing on walls was kind of like gang signatures but eventually i realized that there were names that individual names that really stuck stuck out and it i realized it was something more than just marking your territory yeah and some of those early names for you that you re- recall that I uh, resonated with me yeah. were, you know, people like uh, Tracy One Sixty Eight, Phase Two. I had heard of him, um, Cliff One Fifty Nine. Um, of course, everybody had heard of Tacky One Eighty Three, um, Stay High. There were like a few of the names that, uh, you know, even if even if I didn't see that those names on a daily basis, I knew of them. I had a knowledge of those names and those personalities. And those are some of the first folks to go all city. Yeah, those those guys are real pioneers in every sense of the word. You're from Brooklyn. Yeah, originally I'm from Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Okay, but then going to a school in Manhattan, of course, is, exposes you to different yeah. young people from all over. The yeah, city. I went from being the class artist to everybody's the class artist. You know, yeah, um, and it, it was great. I mean, I I really didn't have much faith in my teachers, uh, but I, I just being around other artists is an education in itself. Of course, I, who who was encouraging you? Were you getting encouragement from home to pursue art? Uh, yeah, a little. Bit. Yes, I would say so. From my mom's, and you know, I, I kind of thought, you know, she didn't. She didn't really understand it. Maybe she still doesn't understand it. What did she do? Um, she was a housewife raving, uh, raising us. Uh-huh. You know, I have like five brothers and sisters. Where so are you in the mix? I'm the oldest. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, she was encouraging it. And the the, uh, the entry thing to art and design was you had to kind of put a portfolio together. So she, she helped me with that. Okay. Help me, you know, saying, oh, you know, they might look at you. You have to have a varied amount of things that they're going to look for. And, yeah, she helped me kind of put it together. And uh, Pops? Uh, he was. He worked for the city. Okay. As an engineer. Okay. And he was cool with the art? Yeah, he didn't really understand that at all. I'm sure. At all. So. Just for, you know, I, I It I just came him, from my, my mom, really. Because for working folks to have, an, you know, to even push their child towards art sometimes feels like a bit of an anomaly because it's such an uncertain future? Well, I wouldn't say I, I think that they would have rather I gone into a, a different focus that they could see me immediately making a living from. However, sure, yeah. I was so into art that there was no way that I was going to pass up an opportunity to test out for that school. And did you know 
during that time that you wanted to be an artist for your life? Was it something that Yeah, was... I did feel that way. I, I felt like I really wanted to um, become a comic book artist. And going to that school, there was there were a lot of kids that, that had that same kind of ambition. And eventually, after a few years, I found out what it took to become a comic book artist. And it wasn't just talent. You know, you, you had to start out, no matter how good you were, sharpening somebody's pencils and em- emptying out paper baskets <laughs> totally. and going for coffee, stuff like that. And I was just like, wow, really? <laughs> like, you mean I'm not going to draw the Fantastic Four right away, you know? Um, but yeah. So was, did, did that alter your sense of what you wanted to do? It, it made me realize that maybe I... I should broaden my perspective on what else is out there. And I thought, you know, maybe commercial illustration would be something that I could do. I mean, you know, you know, it's real difficult, I think, even for today, for kids to imagine how they can take what they love doing and make a living from it. You know, it's real difficult. And it could be music, it could be acting, you know, whatever. But I think it's just really, it's real difficult for kids to strike out a path and find out how they can do that and sustain themselves from it. I'm sure once you got into the yards, then it also began to change what you thought you might be doing. Well, I got got into writing really with no intention of making a living from it at all, at all. Well, there wasn't really a way to do that at that time. There really wasn't a way to do it. And, I, you know, it was like a culture. And it was a thing that I was immersed in completely. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to do this. And and this is like an adventure that I'm going to be on for a while. And after a while, eventually, I'm, I'm going to get off this ride. I, you know, because it's, you know, you have to realize it's a very youth-driven culture, yeah, yeah. even today. And for it to encompass your whole life, you, you can't really be this grown-up adult with you know, responsibilities of a family and paying rent or whatever. It is, it is really youth oriented. Yeah, but of course, here you are, and I know your practice has evolved. Yes. Um, and and I guess I, I I'm, I'm curious about that trajectory. But you were part of a moment where uh, hip hop, as it you know, it, as a package of yes. a, of different genres, was you know kind of being grouped together. And then shared with the world, and you were part of that. You know, you were some of the first, you know, style writing, uh, train art that I had ever seen. That I think people outside of New York had ever seen. You know, in terms of hip hop, my first exposure to hip hop really, like the word, wasn't even invented yet. And I want to say, like in the early seventies. A lot of DJs, it wasn't really based on how good you could cut records or what you had. It was based on your sound system. That's really where the basis of all that came. And I remember going to school with this with this guy in Brooklyn, and there was a very early DJ named Grandmaster Flowers. Yeah. Who was... Um, and and uh, I remember him telling me, oh, you know, he's going to be playing out in the park, and his system is huge. He's got these speakers that are crazy... And I was like, yeah, but I, I kind of feel like the origins of it kind of come from some kind of West Indian yeah, background. S- sound clashes. Sound clashes and Jamaican things like dance that. Halls, yeah. and, and the people that were really in the beginning, that's what their background comes from. You know, so it was really about like 
your early your your sound based on the sound system, you know. And then, you know, I I remember going to jams and parks and, and Queensbridge and, and different places. And again, it was like really about the sound system and plugging in the whole system into a light pole, and the sound system really was like the word of mouth. You'd hear music coming from the park, you'd hear the bass, and people would gravitate towards that. It was a, a public interruption in some ways. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, it was pretty. That was pretty exciting thing to kind of witness. To me, graffiti is a similar kind of public interruption. Of course, you know, it's it's a different kind of announcement, but it is an announcement that you know there is then this continual uh, passing and interruption of your daily in, in the public sphere. Yeah, it's an intervention. Yes. And it's an intervention, um, a public intervention in which you create something in, in a very clandestine environment and you put it out there and then all of a sudden it's got a life of its own. And that's really what was exciting about it for me too is that you know, I, I would see my. I, would, I never knew when I would see my pieces, but all of a sudden, I'd, I'd, I'd run into it during the course of the day. Were there uh, aspects? Because to me, graffiti writers are superheroes, daredevils. I mean, I'm sure you're going to some sort of great physical uh, yes. e extent to put a piece up. What are what are some of the more extreme instances you went through in order to you know? Well, I mean, extreme, like, wow, like climbing up L poles to get to where trains are parked on elevated stations, climbing down them, getting into tunnels or yards. It is all really physical climbing around trains underneath them, on top of them. Yeah, it is. That's why I say, you know, it's really like a young person's world. There's a sense of fearlessness you have to develop. Uh, nerves of steel. Almost. Well, I think you, your adrenaline is pumping, so you're not even thinking about all that. Yeah. Too. You know. So there's there's a you know a a, a, a train era in New York, and that era comes to an end at some point because the MTA. Uh, begins to highly criminalize and militarize the trains. At the same time, you you start to make a transition into some early gallery spaces. Yes. Uh, was that was that a difficult thing as an artist? Did, did you ever feel like you were compromising what you were doing, or was it just all you were make, making art and making art, and even the train to the canvas? No, I mean, really, there was not, there was no abrupt, I, I didn't abruptly stop painting trains the, the minute I made a painting. Of course. Um, I made a painting almost like as an experiment, and, and I really liked where I was taking it, and it was interesting, it was a challenge, it was something new. And at that point, you know, I didn't really have a venue to show it or sell the work or anything like that. It was just something new. And I didn't abruptly just quit writing to do that. I continued writing, as a matter of fact. And actually, some of the work that I did on canvas made my exploits on the train even easier. You know, I, I felt more assured in what I was putting out there. But eventually, kind of what kind of slowed me down is I started to just to feel that I, I times were changing and I had made all the statements that I wanted to make. I wrote with most of the people that I wanted to write with. 
you know, there was a younger generation that was going to come up, and it would be good to kind of pass the torch on to them, and they would continue it. What years are we talking? Oh, we're talking like 19, around 1982, uh-huh. 1983, and at the same time, this whole world was opening up with galleries and all that and it was a new train yard and it was a new education and it was you know a new in within all that was also a new audience of people that my work was kind of reaching so what was that like it's like i mean you're still very young when that's occurring right if we're talking because your first gallery is 80 81 yeah uh well it was um a lot of it was trial and error you know, because I went to art school, but art school didn't prepare me for, you know, the art world. And in a lot of ways, even today, art school doesn't prepare you for that completely. Like, there's nobody in art school that's telling you how to work with art dealers and collectors or whatever. You kind of find this stuff out. You, you kind of find out how to navigate that world on your own. Yeah. Which so, is wild, and it sounds like art school should change. Yeah, that practice. It, it's, it's kind of weird, but... Yeah. Um, I think that uh, I was ready for that change to happen in, in my life and, and to do different things. And, you know, it was like an exciting period to be a part of, uh, but it was also difficult. And it was difficult because of the perception of some people of the, of the world that I was a part of. You mean writers were having a difficulty thinking about the gallery or thinking no, about No, not a, not at all. I think like the art world's perception of what yeah. say hip hop culture was about, how it was all of a sudden packaged and then sold. You know, it was it was really weird and what they thought we were all about. You know, they didn't really look at the individuals as soloists. They looked at them, you know, oh, you guys are all part of the same team and you're all the same and you know, a lot of the criticism from that period was real negative and at the same time real naive about what it was all about. They weren't really looking at the work that we were trying to put out there. They were looking at our personalities and our backgrounds more. That came under scrutiny. It, uh, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, I mean, this is a you know, predominantly white art world, a white gallery world yes. that then is kind of using uh, or, kind of, you know, Focusing its white gaze into a space primarily made of young people of color, yes, uh, and they're trying to, yeah, as you say, kind of lump everyone together. It's they together. think it's they think it's homogenous. They do, but the other thing too is I always felt that you know, even with all that being said, from a period of say eighty to eighty four, there was a huge push, like. Collectors were people were buying, collecting it. People were, in Europe were were opening the doors to us and all that. And by '85, those doors were closed, at least in in America. In Europe, people have a different perspective. But in, in America, it was almost like they were they were trying to learn this new language, and they got frustrated, and they didn't want to deal with with people from my background. And then that was it. They were on to the next thing. And have it, if it were not for people in Europe and other cultures kind of continuing to embrace it, I mean, who knows where we would have been, you know? So, yeah, I mean, in, in America does that, whiteness does that a lot, the kind of fetishization of a particular moment, a particular right. culture, it becomes faddish, and then it's dropped. But you've 
maintained a, a long career. So I, I want to go back to that period, 80 to 84, 85. Yeah. Um, you, very young person from Brooklyn in now this, you know, a, a bit of a darling of a upstart white art world. Um, what, what, what was that like being in the mix? And what were some of the spaces that were showing your work? Oh, it was... Uh some of the early spaces, for example, um, one space was really crucial to all of our to our development was called Fashion Moda, and it was an alternative art space in the South Bronx that was run by a guy named Joe Lewis and Stefan Eintz. Um, Joe Lewis, African American artist, performance artist, visual artist. Stefan Eintz was visual artist. He was of a European background, Austrian. And the two of them opened this gallery that was really amazing because it wasn't driven commercially. So it opened its doors to the surrounding neighborhood in the Bronx, but it also encouraged people from downtown to come uptown and and exhibit there. And on any any given day, people would walk in there, peek in there. They couldn't figure out, yo, what what is this? Is this like a weed spot? What are you you selling? What's going on here? And we'd encourage people, no, this is an art gallery. And people in the surrounding neighborhood would be like, wow, you're a gallery? Yo, I do art. Can I bring my art by? Can I show you my art? Always like, yeah, sure, bring it by. So a lot of people, you know, it was very inclusive and it was a great, great thing to be a part of. But there were other spaces like that in the city, like that that were downtown there were alternative spaces like artist space and franklin furnace there was another space called just above midtown um so these are all places that pretty much were driven by experimental art it was great who who are some of the folks that your contemporaries who are a part of this growing uh gallery scene well, from uh, in that period, I would say Crash, of course, who is continues to be a continue, long time. Yeah, homie. Lady Pink, Lee Quinones, uh, but I would also say Keith Haring was a part of that. Uh, even Jenny Holzer was a very established artist. Jane Dixon, Charlie Ahern, John Ahern, mm. they were all you know very much a part of our world. Um, so that. That must be an exciting period. And then you said the door was closed to you at some point. Yes. You know? The door was... It was like we were invited to all the cool parties. And then all of a sudden, it's like... Oh, I'm sorry. Your name is not on the list. It was like that. Right. So how did that... That must have been a shitty feeling. Yeah, that was pretty fucked up. And, uh, you know, those kind of things where... You learn how to deal with it, though. It's really kind of depressing when it happens. However, you learn to kind of continue on and have, like, a much broader picture, a more uh, um, a better goal, end goal, I should say. So how did, how did your goals begin to shift at that time? Well, I, I knew I had a good work ethic. So regardless, I was going to continue working, you know. Uh, and I just kind of, you know, kept at it and found my opportunity created my opportunities and just worked through it and you said Europe was much more open and continued to be open to you I mean you're collected in museums now throughout the planet well you you could look at it this way Um, I think 
Europeans grow up with art and it's an inclusive thing because it's a part of their daily culture. They recognize that. Whereas in America, art is a commercial vehicle to sell something. That's how people here look at it. It's very different. I mean, you could look at, say, jazz. You know, jazz was, was a big thing. And then, you know, people like Bud Powell or, you know, Miles Davis, they, they couldn't make a living here. Mm -hmm. So they went to Europe and they had thriving careers there. They recorded. They realized that they had a, a big audience, an audience that appreciated them and didn't care what color they were, you know. Um, so... Where I'm coming from is, is pretty is very similar. Different time period, but there's still similarities. So what's what's happening now? Because now I feel like there is a bit of a shift. It seems um, yes. in you know from an American gallery and even slowly American museum uh, experience and appreciation for not only your work but some of your peers and contemporaries. I want to say in the last. Maybe 10 years, there's definitely been some changes towards that, that are positive. I think uh, in terms of museum institutions, which was something that was always, those doors were always so hard to kind of get into, they realized that the general public is interested and there is a big audience out there for it and that means something. So they're not, they're still kind of, Shy and you know they want to tread on water so much, but they're they're a lot more open than they used to be. And do you feel like that time is coming where there'll be at some point a permanent room and collection where we can go into museums? Yeah, not it's, only already, in New it's York. already happening. Yeah, and I think, for example, um, I think the turning point in in America was um, the art in the streets show that Jeffrey Deitch did in L.A. Uh, it was a huge undertaking for him to do, but it was highly successful. Uh, the, the, that exhibition drew record numbers for that museum. It was the Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A. And he's, he's a big deal in the art world, very much so. And, and after that happened, then museums around the country started being much more open to giving solo exhibitions. And how has that affected you well it's affected me in the long run where you know people are not as close-minded as they once were i mean I, I still think that museums are generally run by art collectors more than artists but um they're just more open to it a little bit more open so yeah. it's good yeah but there's still yeah there's still i mean i'm i'm you know continually kind of disappointed in uh, the choices. The choices, but also even the, the lack. I mean, I, I would argue, and I talk about it a lot, you know, graffiti has to be the most uh, revolutionary art form in the last 50 years. Yeah. And there's such little representation of it in contemporary and modern art museums, even though it's the most contemporary and modern of all the art forms. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, when I, when I go into the, the new modern wing in Chicago at the Art Institute and there isn't no. graffiti, then it's like, well, what are y'all doing? Yeah. Well, as I said, I mean, I think museums are run more by art collectors because those are the people that give money and put up money for 
the artists that they collect. The general public doesn't really know that, but that's how that's how it happens, you know. So they want to see they want to see revenue, they want to see numbers. That's a successful exhibition. It's sad to say that it really is because um, they don't really have enough room to put out exhibitions that are experimental or avant-garde. But to your point, the numbers for graffiti yes. are there. They're there. And yeah. if museums want to maintain you know, a certain uh, you know, revelance, uh, revelancy in people's experiences, then they have to target a new demographic and a younger demographic. And one of the ways, if I were leading a museum, I'd be like, well, yeah, shit, we should definitely have continual, uh, you know, retrospectives, but also just what's happening in contemporary studio practice with people influenced by yeah. the aesthetics of graffiti. It's just a hot potato nobody wants to pick up. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, you but you, you have uh, gallery shows around the planet. Yeah. Um, what are some of the spaces... Uh, in the last few years that have been big for you? Well, I had a show, a solo show at the Museum of the City of New York, which was a huge deal yeah. for me uh, coming from here. And it's, just, it's the subject of most of my work. One of the main topics is the city and where I draw inspiration from. That was one. I also had a, a great show at the Addison Museum in Massachusetts and Andover, which... It was like a dialogue between my work and some of the work in the permanent collection there. So they have a great collection of American artists that everybody from, um, say, Diane Arbus or Berenice Abbott to Edward Hopper. Yeah. So I just picked stuff from the permanent collection. Whatever I wanted, was I had access to. And were you... Were you creating pieces in conversation, or did you bring pieces and they I, arranged? I chose pieces that were in conversation right. with that. Well, I'm curious about Ed Hopper. You, you mentioned him because uh, he's part of the Ashcan School yeah. of, of Realism, and you know, especially some of your your later work or work. Um, I'm, I'm thinking particularly about the uh, Staten Island Ferry uh, series that you did, which yeah. I really love. Uh, it engages in a similar kind of, of realism. Well, the Ashcan School came out of this group called the Eight. And it was people like John Sloan and Robert Henry. It was a kind of a school. And what was different about them is that they went out into the city and they started painting neighborhoods and the Lower East Side. And I mean, their subject matter wasn't pretty. It was grimy. And the whatever the it elite, was away from the rural pastoral it, exactly and the elite of that time were like what is this stuff is dirty what is this <laughs> you know this is about the city it was real urban you know but i, I mean i like that it was very urban and my, my work is very urban influence so no that makes i i, I yeah, that, so yeah that, that's a right the, connection the, the parallel yeah they, uh, the Ashcan School influenced a lot of the poets at the turn of the last century who, I think, paved a way for a contemporary, urban, realist, modern American poetic. You yeah. know, folks like Carl Sandburg and Gwendolyn Brooks and even Walt Whitman to some extent, but um, folks who were reflecting on stuff that was happening in the urban space and not just, you know, pictures of haystacks or commentary on 
haystacks yeah. or what have you. Um, what do you have, uh, like, what are you working on right now? <sighs> I'm working on some sculptures. Uh, it's not a new thing for me, but I'm making them kind of large scale, so that's a real new thing. What's the material? Uh, fiberglass. Mm-hmm. They're cast, so uh-huh. they're small and then made big. And uh, I'm working on an exhibition that's going to be in Berlin with Joe Conzo, the um, brilliant hip-hop documentarian and photographer. Yeah. Where, where in Berlin? Uh, it's going to be at a space called Urban Spree. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a brilliant. So place, yeah. we're uh, we're putting it together. When is when is that? It's going to happen in November. The opening will be November twenty second. Oh, that's great! It'll be cool. Yeah. So are you? And you'll go out for the yeah yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, congratulations Thanks. on that. Um, do you have a do you have a studio space now that you yes. work out of? Where is it? It's in the Bronx. Uh huh. Um, and is it? Do you work with other artists? In it I work it with t- yeah. I share the studio with Crash. Okay. Right, because you guys have a, a, a long, long friendship. Yeah. And also helped to develop uh, the, the Netflix series as well. The Get Down. The Get Down. Yeah, we, we didn't really develop it. We were um, brought... It was a great experience to work on that series. <laughs> but it, we, were, we were kind of brought in like the production was already happening. Oh, okay, okay. So we were brought in because the director, Boz Lorman, was paying a lot of attention to the music of that era and the look and all that, but he wasn't paying a lot of attention to, to the visual language of writing, you know, of graffiti. And uh, the writer for the series was like, it, the series was supposed to take place in the mid-1970s, before people had record deals and all that. So that's what he was really interested in focusing on. So the writer was like, yo, you got to get Crashing Days in there. That, that's where they grew up. So they, they brought us in as consultants, and they made like a couple of characters about us that were based on it. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was cool. Yeah, did you, what did you think of the, the series? You know, I think they should have had a disclaimer because um, I, I think that a lot of people expected it to be like really 100% accurate, almost like a documentary, yeah. and it, it wasn't. Yeah. It was a, a, a fictional story that was based on real things that happened. So there were parts of it that were kind of fantastic. Like, you just, okay, this is just not happening, and this never happened. Like, for example, there was like a... This, this character was being chased by a gang and he's running up you know this tenement and then he's like jumping from one roof to another and doing some kung fu on the way yeah, and all yeah. this stuff it's it like was like bananas yeah it was yeah. like come on and then there was um there was another scene where the same dude is in St. Mary's Park which is real you know and he's like sliding down rocks and kung fu again you know it, it was it was nuts. Yeah, um, I, I wonder if if that's something you have to deal with a lot. I mean, being kung fu. No, no uh, <laughs> having the story of your lived experience and an art form and a culture you helped make be told in maybe the wrong way. You you know I. I just think, as I said, that it should have had a disclaimer, and I, I didn't. You know, he was he was sincerely inspired by that period and by the culture. He he was, 
but I looked at his other films and I could see where uh, you know he in- he injected fictional elements into stories and create this whole thing yeah. you know so yeah was <laughs> it well I, I know part of part of what you do I don't know if it's during residencies or in general but you've also become an educator yeah I, I'm I, I mean I work with kids and I work with kids groups but I work with it uh, in, a, in a different way I, I'm not real I don't really consider myself uh, a formal teacher in that uh, I'm telling kids what they do what to do and be my assistant it's more like I'm trying to get in, in their heads and and see what they're interested in and try to bring that out somehow and, and become like a, a door that they can walk through and gain experience so say example this is the typical scenario for me in a workshop <clears throat> I have a group of like say 20, 20 kids and I break them up into little teams of like four or five so amongst those kids, you know, one or two people might be are very artistic and the other two or three are not. So I'm like, okay, well, you could be the guy that executes the mural. You're the idea person. And then there's another person that could do manual stuff. So they're like all this little team. And I kind of teach them how to work together. That's dope. Do you like that kind of experience? With Yeah. I, I didn't have good experiences in school. I, d- I actually did get kicked out of art and design oh, <laughs> eventually. Nice, yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't really a great thing. But um, no, you know, co- no college either? Or did you go? For a minute. Okay. Yeah, I did for a minute. So uh, looking at the failure of some of my instructors, you know, I kind of recognize, you know, what speaks to kids. I wonder if there's something inherent in hip-hop generally, graffiti specifically, that it is a peer-to-peer mentorship, even if it's not uh, someone who's older necessarily mentoring or building with someone who's younger, but just that, you know, that notion of kind of each one teach one, but that you guys were so close to one another and style and form was developing so quickly, uh, evolving so quickly, that there is some implicit... Uh, you know, educational, pedagogic foundation in in what what was happening. I mean, I've gone to different countries and uh, done these kind of workshops and experienced it. And I'll give you an ex- like in Brazil, like hip hop culture. It's not just kind of entertainment; it's political, and you know, you find that out really quickly. Like it's very political, and it's the voice for disenfranchised communities that are huge there. Because the economic divide between those that have and have not is real big. So they look at it as very much um, a political thing. And do you feel, don't you feel like that's the same spirit in which it emerges here? Yes and no. I mean, certainly from the era that I come from, yeah. But I definitely see a lot of commercialism now. Yeah. I mean, people make music about what they think is going to sell. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. It was, I mean, <laughs> Sorry, it was packaged. No, yeah. it was, no, it's facts. It was packaged and sold. Yeah. But the original, well, not even intent, but the original impetus seems to be, you know, young people from communities of color that were disenfranchised, and as you said, you know, the country, the city turned its back on y'all, and you guys were like, well, yeah. we're going to make anyway, which is pretty, yeah, fantastic. Um, I am, uh, I'm, I'm curious about so many things, but the name. Uh, oh, that's. I just, you know, I think choosing a name is really important. 
Yeah, it, it is, and an original name. So I just thought it, you know, putting together the letters that I could draw and came up with my name. So it's not such a but profound, just, but just based off reason. Of, of, of the of, of letters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is so important in that particular work. I mean, style writing graffiti is a, a kind of letter science. Yeah. Um, so why? What was it about those letters that that drew you to them? You know, I don't know. It's just the way that they flowed together. It worked together, and at the same time, at that time, it sounded very unique. And but it had a lot to do with the flow, the way that each letter kind of flowed into the, the other one. Yeah, yeah. A lot, and a lot of kind of four-letter uh, writers generally, but, and, and uh, you have the balance of the vowels, the, yeah. you know, the fluidity of the Z. Um, you had aliases, too. Yeah, I wrote uh, Chill 2, Wind 2. I wrote Baudet. I did a couple of Baudet pieces. I wrote TRI-169. I had a few names. Um, you know, I mean, writing the same thing over and over can get a little monotonous sometimes, but um, having a different name kind of pushes you. Do you miss the, the train yards? Not really. No, yeah. <laughs> sorry. I mean, I, I you know, last night an, uh, an incredible exhibition opened up at the Bronx Museum by the photographer Henry Chalfont, yeah. and uh, who was also a yeah, very a, a brilliant documentarian. The director, along with Tony Silvers of the film Style Wars, and I was one of the first people that one of the first writers to meet Henry uh, in the uh, about 1978, maybe. And um, looking at that work does make me nostalgic, yeah, for that time and period. And when I look at it, I, I kind of think, wow, man, if only I would have done even more. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah, well, you definitely you put, your, yeah. you, put you, you made a significant mark yeah. that reverberates forever. Um, and you continue to. Uh, the, the jump into sculpting now... Um, these sculptures will live at the exhibition in, in Berlin? Not at all. Okay. No, so yeah, gonna, what, what, are, what are you making for? Uh, what are um, the they're going to be in Art Basel, Miami. Great. Okay. Yeah. Good. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a pleasure and an honor to build with you. Where, where can people stay in tune with uh, what you do on, on the Internet? You know, I'm not a big social media guy, but I'm on Instagram, and my Instagram is DaysWorldNYC. So you can follow my daily routine there. That with yeah, the Z. Yes, Days World NYC. Um, and and do you make every day? Sorry. Do you make every day? Do you create every day? Is is that yes. part? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah. And, and you go to the studio and just open it up and, and. Yeah, I do. I go to the studio five days a week. Yeah. Uh, but my work also take, sometimes takes me out of the studio. I still make murals. I still pub- do public stuff. Um, sometimes I'm at home designing something, you know, but it's all a part of the same. It's all under the same umbrella. Yeah, no doubt. Well, man, thank you so much for thanks for having me coming into the corner store. It's really it's an, it's cool. an honor. So appreciate you. Yeah. yeah. Shout out our super producer DJ Cashera. Big up boss man Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our 
Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com corner store underscore pod. The corner store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.